When John Favreau joined me to discuss his remake of The Jungle Book, he revealed that the aspect of the film he was most preoccupied with was the music. My latest guest, Bill Condon, says much the same thing about his retelling of a more recent Disney classic, Beauty and the Beast. I'm Edith Bowman and you're listening to Soundtracking, a weekly podcast in which directors, writers, actors and composers discuss music. In Bill's case, it was a potential deal breaker. He only agreed to direct the project on the condition that the man who composed the original score came on board. That man is Alan Menken, whose Oscar-winning themes for the 1991 animation reverberate loud and clear throughout this live-action reboot. Welcome to Soundtracking. Hello. To my podcast where I get to talk to filmmakers about music. Oh, great. This my is favorite per- topic. This is yes. perfect. Absolutely. Um, I, and to be honest, I think we're going to spend the next while talking about your new film, Beauty and the Beast, because it's absolutely wonderful. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad you liked it. Um, I don't quite know where to start, but I read that when the project was first kind of being talked mm. about, there was a question whether it would be a musical. Is that right? Yes. You know, they had been developing it for a few years. It was kind of in the time of Snow White and the Huntsman, you know, so yeah. these kind of reinventions of fairy tales as kind of harder edge kind of action movies, you know. But then Frozen appeared on the Disney landscape and it was a big hit, and it was Alan Horn, who was the chairman of Disney, who said we should do it as a musical. That's when I heard about it, and I went in to meet about it, and I was only discouraged because they said, well, we think we'll use three or four songs, and I kind of, at the end of it, the next day, and called them and said, you know, I, I really would love to do a Beauty and the Beast movie, but only if you do the whole score, and probably even more songs. And they thought about it, and they said, okay. Why do you think it needs music? You know, it's funny. We've released these three trailers, and each one of them has got 100 million hits, and everyone was very excited, patting themselves on the back. I kept saying, we could release Black Leader for two and a half minutes, and, and 100 million people, <laughs> as long as you have that Mencken theme, you yeah. know, da-da-da-da-da. That is the thing that separates this from the countless other versions of Beauty and the Beast, that music, which so gets into your bones, you know, it just, all of it comes flooding back. <laughs> I Every know, right? my arm just
And it's incredible as a filmmaker because you, you're always looking for ways to get inside the characters' heads mm. and to make the emotions come to life. But when you've got music like that already to work from, you know, yeah. it just really gets you 10 steps ahead. question in your head that it would be Alan Menken that would, would, that would revisit something that is already part of his world and he's been there. Was that ever a doubt there? Or? Not even for half a second. I couldn't. In fact, I wouldn't have done it if it hadn't been him, honestly. Yeah. That's the DNA of this musical. And in fact, you know, in the process of turning it from an animated film into a film that was going to be populated by actors yeah. on real sets, you know, everything that that entails, basically characters who you want to know more about, you know, and who have a certain kind of psychological nuance and, and you want to be able to really believe the steps of uh, their falling in love, turning them into individuals. You know, that meant finding out more about them. And then the possibility and the kind of need for new songs started to emerge. You know, I think there's been a, there's a like a, a long list of Hollywood sins, you know, uh, across the decades of people who haven't respected the original creators, you know. Yeah. But again, I wouldn't have done it without them. forget going to a hotel room really down the road here to see Alan and, and Sir Tim Rice who had gotten involved after the animated film on the Broadway adaptation so he he himself had been connected to this project for over 20 years and pitching them the first new song that I wanted and in the middle Alan if you've ever met him he's just a huge bundle of energy you know he jumped up I, I got it, I got it and he ran over the piano and he started to play this tune which turned into How Does a Moment Last Forever which is sung by Kevin Klein and Emma Watson and ultimately by Celine Dion in the movie and it was just it's a moment I'll never forget because there pouring out of him was music that could have fit into the original movie and it was just completely available to him literally at his fingertips And 
how did you know what you what you needed to add in terms of new songs yeah. and how many you wanted and what you needed them for and how many of the old songs? You know, first of all, for the old songs, you look at the animated film and you think, okay, well, you know, do we need them all? Well, actually, we do. I mean, that movie is perfect, you know, and each one of those songs does a lot of work and they're great songs. I couldn't, I couldn't think of a song to cut, you know? Yeah. The new songs really speak to the new material, you know? Basically, we're filling in the story of uh, Maurice and Belle and how they wound up at this village and inevitably that leads to what happened to her mother yeah. and that is one of those songs This is the Paris of my childhood These were the borders of my life In this crumbling dusty attic Where an artist loved his Then there's a second song about how the Beast, when he was a prince, you know, how did he get so distorted that he was somebody who was worthy of being cursed? And that has to do with his mother and his father. So that's the second song. Days in the sun, where my life has barely begun. Not until my whole life is done, will I ever leave you? Songs really occur in musicals when Emotions are too intense and people can't speak anymore. They can only express themselves in this bigger way. Yeah. Has there ever been a more dramatically fraught moment than when the Beast releases Belle? In other words, he finally falls in love. But the act of falling in love means that he's sacrificing his future. She wants to go back and protect her father. He's going to let her go. He has fulfilled half of what he needed to to get the curse lifted. Yeah. But she doesn't love him yet, and he's sacrificing himself. So that moment of saying goodbye to her, it just screams to have a song, you know? That was the very exciting collaboration with both uh, Alan and Tim on this new song that Dan Stevens sings called Evermore. I was the one who had it all. I was the master of my fate. I never needed anybody in my life I learned the truth too late I'll never shake away the pain I close my eyes but she's still there I let her steal into my melancholy heart It's more than I can bear Now I know she'll never leave me Even as she runs away She will still torment me, calm me, hurt me, move me, come what may Wasting in my lonely tower Waiting by an open door I'll fool myself, she'll walk right in And be with me forevermore And when you're speaking to Tim and Alan about, you know, what you need and what you want, what are those conversations? Like you said, Alan's so instinctive. You know what it is? I think what's always useful to a lyricist to actually kind of write it out in dialogue. So it's a scene and then see what he wants to take from that. So we did that. But then also, in a movie, in a song, 
there has to be movement. It's a movie, you know. A character has to be somewhere different at the end of the song from where he is at the beginning. And in this case, I just gave them a visual scheme. It's like, forget everything he's feeling. What he wants to do in movie terms is he wants to keep climbing higher and higher and higher in the castle because as she rides away on her horse, he wants to get as many looks at her as he can get until he gets to the top of the castle and she disappears forever. He's trying to hold on to her for every last second. That's what the song is, in a way. I'll fool myself, she'll walk right in. And as the long, long nights begin, I'll think of all that might have been waiting here forever. And I think that sort of made it all click for them. It's like, yeah. oh, I get that, you know, because then, then musically, the music ascends, you know, the music ascends and builds. And then it weirdly, you know, you would think at that moment, and this is one of the things that I think is so brilliant about Alan Menken, you can imagine the dirge that another composer would have uh, the beast sing at that moment. It's a triumphant song. You know, Alan is this ultimate optimist. So between Alan and Tim, they found the one saving grace, the one consolation in this predicament, which is that, you know what, I've loved her and she'll never leave me because I have something now I've never had in my life before. And even as these lights go down and even as this castle dies, even as the curse extends into eternity, I have something I didn't have before. It's beautiful. Yeah. You have this wonderful palette of music and tunes, and then you have this incredible cast. Emma just is Belle. She embodies so much about her. I know. Feistiness, you know, mm -hmm. really independent yes, and driven. Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine me, the wife of that boorish, brainless? Madame Gaston, can't you just see it? Madame Gaston, his little wife. Ugh. No, sir, not me. I guarantee it, I want much more than this provincial life. I want adventure in the great white somewhere. I want it more than I can tell. And for once it might be. I want so much more than they've got planned. Difficult, I imagine, for you to find the right people who could embody those characters, but also could give it the kind of singing chops as well. That was the big challenge, absolutely. And, you know, I knew Emma Watson was right for it, but none of us had heard her sing before. So <laughs> yeah. there's always, and you always know, you know, I always say that hearing people sing, it's a more intimate thing than having people take their clothes off you know and we all know and you know from music it's like you can be so shocked by the sounds that come out of somebody's mouth at a karaoke session yeah. you know it's not like, always good not, not always, always good, good. it's like wow that's what you sound like when you sing little town it's a quiet village every day like the one before little town Waking up to say, Good day, 
call this But the thing about Emma, you know, and she she wanted to make sure she could do it too. So she sort of went away and and made a tape of the songs and and sent it to me. And the thing that was so thrilling and such a relief is that her voice is there's no distinction almost. You all of her is in her singing. You know, all of her personality, all of who she is yeah. is right there in very very clear, pretty tones. You know. Yeah. There's something sweet and almost kind. But he was mean and he was coarse and unrefined And now he's dear and so unsure I wonder why I didn't see it there before And it's not stage school singing, it's no, real singing exactly. and it, Like you say, it's almost an extension of her That's conversation right, yes Yeah, leave the big theatrical stuff to Gaston LeFou, right? Because <laughs> yeah. that's who they are She glanced this way, I thought I saw When we touched, she didn't shudder at my paw no, it can't be. I'll just ignore. But then she's never looked at me that way before. What, Mama? There may be something there that wasn't there before. What is it? What's there? I'll tell you when you're older. OK, I'm older. Chip. Oh, <laughs> you know what? Who else I absolutely loved was Emma's Beauty and the Beast. Oh Emma yeah, Thompson. I know, right? I didn't know she could sing like that. Oh yeah, no, she can do it. And the, the odd thing, she's done it a lot on stage, but not too much in movies. Yeah. You know? She recorded that the night after she closed at the ENO in Sweeney Todd, which is a huge vocal part, you know. And she announced that it had been created by Angela Lansbury, and she announced that she was only doing Angela Lansbury parts from now on. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think she's on to murder. Oh, wow. She wrote. I'm about to yeah, say, exactly. yeah, that yes, is exactly. great idea. Yeah. Look forward to that. And bed knobs and broomsticks <laughs> exactly, as well. That's right. <laughs> yeah, totally. That I look forward to. Tale as old as time, true as it can be, barely even friends. Then somebody bends unexpectedly. Just a little change Small to say the least Both a little scared Neither one prepared Beauty and the beast Tale as old as time Song as old as rhyme Now, I heard a rumour that you, in auditions, you made your cast sing Hakuna Matata. This is, is completely this, is this... untrue. And my, okay. my friend, the co-producer, Greg, <laughs> who's sitting here, 
Like, oh, not uh, this one again. It was it was a bad joke of his that I quoted in an early interview. <laughs> and, you know, I, I keep forgetting That's that once, a problem. once it exists, it's like it never goes away. Yeah. Yeah. Can we put a stake in that one yeah, right definitely. now? Yeah, definitely. It's right. lies. Mm-hmm. Absolutely lies. Hakuna Matata. What a wonderful phrase. Hakuna Matata. Ain't no person craze. It means no worries for the rest of your days. It's our problem-free philosophy. Hakuna Matata. In terms of bringing something that this animated world to to a real life world, and there's so many questions I have that are non music related. The beast, yes, and the humor and the comedy that right? Dan yeah. brings to yes, that part exactly. as well. It, it's the tone of it is wonderful. Mm. How did you shoot him? Because you know you see the expressions and the movements and the body, and it's sharp and it's there. Yeah. How did you do it? Well, I just want to say when you talk about that first thing, if you cast the right actors. They start to know these parts better than you do, and I really did depend on Dan with Emma, but Dan particularly in rehearsal sessions, you know? Yeah. You know, the beast in the animated film was illiterate, and this is a highly educated beast, you know, that he could go toe-to-toe with Belle and actually sort of win a few points, you know? Mm -hmm. So a lot of that is Dan's wit, you know, and a few of his actual lines, you know? Oh, Uh, Yeah, so that was great. In terms of how to do it, my God, it was such a long process, and it really covers all different techniques. First of all, we designed a beast. You know, we sort of kept refining it. And then once we felt like we had something, we built it. Dave and Lou Elsie designed it. They built a huge model of it, the seven-foot-tall model that then could also be worn. And then we'd look at it, and it was like, mm, the face not. So that happened about three times. But during that time, Dan was able to put it on, and Emma was able to rehearse with it. So you knew what it looked like in reality. We, we knew how to light it. And then real trial and error there, and then we finally found the look that we wanted. Then the second part of it is that Dan, on the day, on the set, he wore a huge motion capture outfit and these stilts that made him seven feet tall. Incredible, you know, learning how to not only walk down steps in those things, but to to waltz in those things, you know? (laughs) Um, Elegantly. uh, Yes. And that became the structure on which the body that we'd created in real life was then adapted to in the computer in the following 18 months. then the big thing that was had been used before but rarely is this process where instead of being on the set as they often do you know with actors wearing you know a rig with cameras it was just his face he was just able to act with Emma there was no obstruction but then at night he would go into this kind of Star Trek rig and they'd spray his face with this paint that picked up every pore and then Emma would sit often Emma sometimes other actors would sit and he would without moving his face too much so it's just capturing that part of him he would redo the scenes most amazingly for me was the time when he redid the music of Beauty and the Beast and he did the dance again, capturing every emotion he had in his face but not being able to move.
What that does, though, is that every pore of his skin then gets applied to this model that then gets covered in fur. And that's why more of Dan Stevens comes through yeah. in this performance, I think, than it has ever happened in a CG performance before. And that was so important to us because he is the emotional romantic hero, the emotional center of the movie. He sings a big song, you know. This was like putting demands on this technology that it really had never had before. Winter turns to spring. Famine turns to feast, nature points the way, nothing left to say, beauty and the beast. There are big numbers in this film, big numbers. Mm -hmm. You know, your feet are tapping and you're kind of mm -hmm. high kicking in your seat whilst you're watching it. Were those captured live? Yes, that's the thing. Because I knew we had the CG household staff, you know, Lumiere and Cogsworth and all yeah. that. I really wanted as much of the rest of the movie to be live and real as possible. That applied to the sets, these massive sets, you know, that went on for miles, this huge village that we built. And then also in the big ensemble numbers, you know, where you have 200 people in the town square for the end of Bell, the opening number, or Gaston, you know, <laughs> yeah. like 100 people in there. It really had the feeling of just being in a great old golden age Hollywood musical. No. As Gaston, no one's quick as Gaston. No one's next as incredibly thick as Gaston. But there's no man in town if it's manly. Perfect, a pure paragon. You can ask any Tom, Dick, or Stanley, and they'll tell you whose team they prefer to be on. Much more than the sum of his parts like Gaston. As a specimen, yes, I'm intimidating. I want a guy I needed encouragement. Thank you, LeFou. Well, there's no one as easy to bolster as you. Too much? Yep. We haven't even mentioned Gaston yet. Oh, oh I know, oh, right, oh, right, yeah, Luke, yeah. I mean, yeah. Luke and Josh, that double act I is know, it's just, great, isn't it? Luke's fantastic. He is it's, fantastic. Oh, God, you know? yeah. You know when you get, get from him and Josh, it's just like, because they've been doing it for years on stage, you know? Yeah. First of all, it's the confidence, right? And the joy of putting a number, you know, not literally across the footlights, but really understanding how to, like, project it. So even when Luke is scary Gaston singing Kill the Beast, you get this tingle of pleasure because he's just so enjoying the performance of it, you know? We don't like what we don't understand. In fact, it scares us. And this monster is mysterious at least. Bring your guns, bring your knives, save your children and your wives. We'll save our village and our in the past that the music has been such a big part of all of them dream girls and yes. then writing the screenplay for, for chicago as well and stuff mm. did you think you needed to have done them to do this oh yeah absolutely no yeah. there's no question because i do think 
When I think of like all the movies I've done, I started out in horror movies, you know, and here we've got a scary beast, you know, and we've got a wolf attack. I've done musicals, but nothing quite as big as this, you know. With Twilight, I went to school to learn about visual effects. And then obviously I've done a lot of intimate dramas, and here there's some very delicate scenes between uh, Belle and Beast, you know. So I feel as though, in a way, this movie kind of combines everything I've done, and I don't think I could have done this movie without having done all of those. and gentlemen, the Crystal Room is proud to present the club debut of America's newest recording stars, The Dreams. With those films that you've worked on in the past and the composers that you've worked with, what's been the thing that's been that decision-making process for you in terms of who you've worked with? It's interesting. Dreamgirls, like this movie, Henry Krieger had written the show 25 years earlier, and again, there was a question, oh, well, we can put in Motown from the period, or we can get some hot new composers, like, absolutely not, this is in his DNA. So that was a very similar thing of watching somebody be able to pick up from where he left off. Every man has his own special dream and that dreams just about to come true life's not as bad as it may seem if you open your eyes to us in front of you Many of my other movies have been composed by Carter Burwell, you know, yeah. and that's just been an incredibly satisfying collaboration. I always say he's an actor's best friend because <laughs> he brings emotions and ideas to the surface. The transformation that Gods and Monsters went through when his score was first uh, applied to it was amazing. And, and he, what I always find with the best composers is that they do surprise you a lot, you know? I've learned an incredible amount from working with him. I, I love that when a composer kind of questions the, the norm. Especially in this world, because it does feel as though film composing has become a lot about just gilding the lily, like telling you exactly what you're already seeing, you know, and kind of really forcing you to feel <laughs> yeah. what they want you to feel, you know, yeah, which, yeah. which I, I kind of find I resent a lot.
it's interesting as well when you think of sort of genre of films and stuff and you look across your body of work and I love how surprising you are right. you know from horror to where we are now and right, everything sure. in between yeah, yeah. sort of film and The Fifth Estate which I loved in oh, terms of wow, the subject you're the one I, um, <laughs> I, I really did I really enjoyed That's that but in terms of the subject matter of that film and kind of thinking about sonically where that had to be or yes. how it had to go as a film, yeah. quite specific and precise, I imagine, for you as a director, thinking about what you wanted to do with that. No. One thing people didn't understand about that movie, it's so hard because it was actually a period film. By the time yeah. we made it, it was events like that were two years old, and the sound was a specific Berlin techno sound that had already kind of moved on. But working in that sound, that was a real, it was an interesting challenge for Carter, you know, because it's not obviously a kind of traditionally emotional kind of landscape, you know? Yeah. So for him to sort of get under the skin of characters with that kind of language, I love watching him figure it out. for you that you remember growing up and being a film fan that really connected with you know musical you know I level. think it's Hitchcock right and it was the Bernard Herrmann but there are a lot of other great composers he worked with but my god that's where again they seem almost like musicals but the way that the movement of the camera and the editing combines with the music it's pure movies you know young that had kind of moved on to Bernard Herrmann and Pino Donaggio working with De Palma you know so it's those kind of quasi-operatic kind of approaches to scoring that I always responded to.
I love the fact that you you like learning as you go along as well. Oh, yeah, so absolutely. you went back to yeah. school yeah, yeah. to learn about technology for the Twilight right, films as right, well. That's yes. great to hear because you know. Yeah, you know, no, it's, and I imagine with this as well. You know, you talked about that whole kind of thing with the pores with Dan as well. I know. Like yeah, I didn't know about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's like yeah, that. Exactly, oh, new yeah. things. Right. Um, Bill, thank you so much for thank your you. time. That's it's great. an absolute pleasure, and yeah, I can't wait to see the film again. And oh, take my good. kids as well. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah, thank you so much, Bill. Take care. Thank you. How does a moment last forever? How can a story never die? It is love we must hold on to. Never easy, but we try. Sometimes our happiness is captured. Somehow a time and place stands still. Love lives on inside our hearts and always will. Minutes turn to hours, days to years that go. But when all else has been forgotten, still our song lives on. How does a moment last forever? From the end credits to the new Beauty and the Beast, that's How Does a Moment Last Forever by Celine Dion. Rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Bill Condon. My thanks to Bill for taking the time to talk to us. Beauty and the Beast is on general release around the world now, with Alan Menken's score available via Walt Disney Records. Now, you can catch up with all of our previous episodes by heading to edithbowman.com, which is also the place to subscribe to this podcast and find out about the music we've played. You can follow us on Facebook, on Instagram and on Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And please do rate us on iTunes if you get a moment. Joining us next week to talk about all the music he's done and a kind of prequel to his new film, Baby Driver, it is the fabulous Edgar Wright. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. <laughs>